Loud enough for you? Uh, yeah, it looks good. You could you could probably be a little bit louder. You'll get louder, don't worry. I'll get loud and angry. It's like noon and I haven't had breakfast. Live from the Mundangerous Locked Door in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 133 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to keep the game moving when the dice say no. But first the rogue traders get a history lesson from the galaxy's scariest professor in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the one-hit wonder fells one creature with one blow in the character creation forge. So before we get to that, we have an announcement from Wizards of the Coast. There's a new book on the way. Morgan Kanan's Tome of Foes. Shane, I know you're super excited about this because you're extremely optimistic about it. I am super optimistic about it. Yep, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like it's going to be more like Volo's Guide, which I liked more than Xanathar's Guide. That's true. We we did give Volo's a good review. We really liked the in-depth lore. I know that during the announcement, Merle said... Morden Kanan's is not going to be a Monster Manual 3, which makes me think, wait, did you think Volos was a Monster Manual 2? Right, because that wasn't a Monster Manual, buddy. <laughs> that was a bunch of crap. <laughs> no, it's crap is the wrong word for it, but yeah, it was a bunch of filler and some good Monster Manual stuff, but it was half a Monster Manual. Well, that's kind of what we're getting this time. So this is going to be a massive book. It's 256 pages, which is like 100 pages more than Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's longer than um, Xanathar's, mm-hmm. and I believe about half of it is going to be monster manual entries. Right. Now, these are supposedly are supposed to be like more in-depth entries than you get from the original monster manual, but probably not as in-depth as we got in Volo's Guide, but they're specifically going to be skewed toward higher level enemies. High CR uh, and planar creatures. Uh, they say we're going to get all of the archdevils of the nine hells. Yeah, and speaking of planar creatures, we're also getting the both of the Gith, the Githyanki and Githzerai. So we're expanding a little bit. Um, and since Morden Kanan is not sort of a core Forgotten Realms character, uh, they also clarified that it's not going to be a specifically Forgotten Realms book. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed for... I mean, it's not going to be a Planescape book, right? But I'm hoping that there's a substantial amount of information in there about Sigil, um, the the multiverse. I'd love to see some great wheel stuff. Uh, apparently, we're going to get Cambions. Uh, there are going to be some new Tiefling options. I don't know that we need more Tiefling options. Yeah, I don't need Tieflings <laughs> customized to individual Archdevils. Like, but we already have customizable Tieflings. That's good enough. And the, kind of the point of being a tiefling, at least in Planescape, was like, I don't really know where the evil comes from. Right. You know, right. it's not like, you know, Grandpa was an archduke and like we got together <laughs> for like anti-Christmas, you know, <laughs> we hung the tree upside down. <laughs> it's called Festivus. <laughs> so it's going to be. 50 bucks comes out May 29th, although the alternative cover is going to be available in friendly local gaming stores probably, you know, mid-May. Yeah, uh, we got to talk about that too, because in general, I think the art has been super good in 5th edition, um, outside of some weird feet, but 
man, I hate what they did with the cover on this one for the alt, the alternate version. Why is that? So every other book had this cool, like, metallically shining. Well, I say every other book. Volos and uh, Xanathar's Guides had the shiny line art covers by Hydro 76, right? And, like, they weren't my favorite, but they weren't especially D&D looking. So I kind of, I thought they were kind of arcane looking without being explicitly, you know, a game book. Yeah, they're low key. Right. Right. Uh, they also like looked cool on a shelf next to each other. They kind of had a similar aesthetic. They had a, a nice like um, feel in your hands because they were sort of that softer material. Uh, it wasn't like a hard sort of like plastic covered book cover. Um, now it's a colorful like teal and gold. It looks like the poster for the Great Gatsby film. <laughs> like it's it's just a very different style that doesn't match Sword Coast Adventures Guide the PHB or the two other alternate covers. It is very Morden Canaan, which means it's a little gaudy. Yeah, I I also I don't know, does anybody really like like Morden Canaan and and want that front and center of anything for you? Though I guess you could say the same thing for Folos and Santathars. <laughs> oh, those guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Volo, my favorite whiny bard. <laughs> Can we get a fifth edition D and D book named after a woman? <laughs> I think it's about time. <laughs> I mean, who would it be? <laughs> the the symbol, right? Doesn't she do stuff? I don't know who uh, that is. Mister keeps dying. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mister's guide to everlasting life. <laughs> Real life plot armor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. Okay, so we are going to do our best to get you a full review of this book. Oh, my God, it's going to take forever. I'm really hoping it, it's not a two-and-a-half-hour episode, so I think we're going to need to like move through it more quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but ideally, that's going to be out before the book is available in gaming stores, so you can decide whether or not you want to buy it. But if you've already made up your mind, you can pre-order it already. Speaking of jumping the gun, Shane... Where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And the crew of the His Enduring Light have recovered an Imperial Reliquary from Chaos Space Marines, evaded interception by a Chaos Reaver, and traveled to the far outer reaches to a dead world called Malajak to deliver it to an Inquisitor, a Dark Angels Interrogator Chaplain, and a rival Rogue Trader. So, of course, after doing all of this, we have earned a just reward. We should each be given a planet, and now we retire. Game over. Yes? Uh, no, your reward is that you got to open the box. Uh, but never. Never open the box. Never look in the box. <laughs> Only bad things are in there. Well, what what bad thing was in there this time, Ishan? Um, Brad Pitt's wife's head? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, just a, a, a glow that represents uh, the plot. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Okay, big, yes, that was that was definitely it. Golden exclamation point hovering over it, telling right. you to look inside. Uh, yep. No, it was a it was a book. It was, it was a, a book. Big stupid book. A big stupid book. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was uh, covered in Dark Angels iconography, uh, including the Crozius Arcanum, the uh, scepter that the interrogator chaplain is wielding. Um, kind of got a an angel of death, an angel of vengeance, if you will, on the uh, on the cover. And then, begrudgingly, at the Inquisitor's request, the interrogator chaplain, Visago, uh, he he doesn't introduce himself, by the way. He just kind of like, you know, you, you pick up his name when uh, 
when, when the he Inquisitor... refers to himself in the third person. No, when the Inquisitor <laughs> announces him, <laughs> uh, he begins to explain sort of the context of the Codex, which means you're going to have to settle in as players for a lore dump on the Dark Angels exposition. So he basically explains that Dark Angels are the first legion of the Space Marines, but they have a terrible secret. I go figure. So during the Horse Heresy, which was, you know, 10,000 years ago, their Primarch, Lionel Johnson, led the chapter to successfully defeat Horus and and defeat the forces of chaos. Uh, you know, this wounded the Emperor of Mankind. He ended up in, entombed in the Golden Throne. And, you know, the Imperium has kind of been dealing with that ever since. But when the Crusade fleet returned to their homeworld, Caliban, uh, they were inexplicably fired upon by the garrison dark angels there. Uh, and it turns out, uh, this will, you know, naturally, uh, they had fallen to chaos. See, everyone says that they were colluding with chaos, but I don't think that there's any proof that's of a, that, quite that, obviously. That's a great thing to tell that interrogator, Chaplin. <laughs> <laughs> Look, as this, as this memo that I wrote clearly indicates, <laughs> there was no collusion with chaos. <laughs> Uh, that memo was classified, and you're going to die for having revealed it. Oh, heresy. You know, at least uh, there are consequences for actions in, <laughs> in 40K. Right. <laughs> well, in the case of the uh, of the Dark Angels, the consequence was that uh, the Lion and his Crusade fleet um, destroyed Caliban in the process of defeating the fallen Dark Angels. So uh, everyone knows... Um, sort of the the mythos of the space marines and the dark angels that um, the the dark angels hail from a homeworld called the rock which is just a fragment of like an asteroid right like surviving bedrock with a fortress on it uh, outfitted with weaponry and warp drives so they have a mobile homeworld um, you did not know uh, no one in the imperium knows why caliban was destroyed so that's a pretty dangerous secret that you've now been told I hate learning secrets in 40K. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, as penance, the Dark Angels have sworn to track down each of the fallen and bring them to redemption uh, and or kill them. Those uh, are basically, those are the same thing. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, but it is the sacred duty of the interrogator chaplain, like Visago, to uh, hunt them down and bring them in. Uh, so they collect black pearls for each fallen that they have caught and redeemed. And how many does he have again? He has three. And how many are on this book? There are eight on the book. That's a lot. That means that it was authored most likely by a very uh, experienced interrogator chaplain, you would think. Um, actually, in canon, uh, the most of any interrogator chaplain is 13. So they're not making real fast progress here. <laughs> So Fasago goes on and he explains that the fallen were tracked to Malajact. Oh, what a coincidence. Just a few millennia ago. And then they dug in here and entrenched this fortress world. What do you do when your enemy is dug in onto a planet and you can't land and take care of them? You exterminate us. <laughs> yep. <laughs> bad things happen to a planet when you glass the surface. Sometimes it makes the weather really, really bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, one Ordo exterminatus later, and here we are on Malajact. <laughs> so, as he's explaining this, uh, Visago's getting more and more tense, which is um, disconcerting. Mm-hmm. Considering he's a giant, what, nine-foot space marine in power armor? And, and, yeah, jet black power armor. Yep. <laughs> 
it, it seems like he feels like he's revealing these secrets to people who aren't worthy of hearing them. But he's deferring to the Inquisitor. But he's making it very clear that Roth is kind of in the same boat that we are. He's not in charge here. You know, when we came, we thought Roth was choosing this location. He's he's basically uh, in tow with the Inquisitor, just like we are. Exactly. So, uh, story time is over, and everyone again turns to the Codex, which Visago now calls the Codex Cipher. And we'll find out what's inside the Codex Cipher next week. It's probably blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or something that will get you bloody. <laughs> or like a, a new design for a canteen. <laughs> yeah, you really want it to be an STC. <laughs> I need an STC, yes. <laughs> okay, so this week we're talking about failing forward. Shane, I know we're going to talk in a second about what exactly that means, but first... Um, I want you to know that that uh, solo campaign you and I have been talking about that I was going to make for you, it's finally here. And I know you've been working for like weeks on your character, and I've been working for months on this thing. You ready to do this? We're just we're gonna we're gonna start it right here on on there. Okay. Okay. Let's go. Okay. All right. So you have a map to lost pyramids far in the desert. You've been traveling for weeks in the desert, and finally you arrive at the location that the map indicates the pyramids are located. All you can see right now is a flat expanse of desert. Make a perception check. Okay, I will roll it in my dice app. Uh-huh. Nine. Nine. You don't see anything. Game over. Um, okay, yeah, I'll just go back to town then, I guess, and, like, do something else. I guess I'll get a beer. I don't, I didn't, that's not, I, wouldn't, I didn't plan for that. <laughs> I okay. didn't stat the town. You're supposed to find the pyramid. Uh, oh, this sucks. We ruined it. We've this broken is garbage. Everything. What is even the point of this? Well, well <laughs> actually, we kind of failed forward, and I found it more interesting than your stupid pyramid, so <laughs> we're not even good at failing. No, tell me about this town. <laughs> I, I have nothing. I, nope, nope. The town doesn't exist. Go look again. <laughs> okay, you're on a flat world with with nothing for hundreds of miles in any direction. <laughs> but you feel like you must be at the right spot. Okay, so this is a, a problem that you sometimes run into with a game is the module or the GM is expecting that the party is going to succeed at a thing so that the story continue, and then they don't. Uh, okay, then what do you do? You know, do you just halt all gameplay? Are you stuck? Do you have to like come up with something totally on the fly? The key here is planning ahead by making sure that the party has a way to fail forward. Yeah, in, in looser terms, I think it's um, finding ways to make sure that the fail state is as interesting as the success state, right? So when I if I had succeeded and found those pyramids, like, cool, I would have gotten to explore them. But since I failed, something should happen that's equally interesting um, that allows the story to progress and also, you know, doesn't reward failure, but um, gives me a new challenge or a new wrinkle or new information. Right. Maybe uh, you get found by bandits. And once you defeat them, ideally... They have a better map. Yes. <laughs> or some, like, you know, uh, red and blue lens glasses. <laughs> Yes, the pyramids are only in 3D. <laughs> well, they're on the back of the the Constitution. <laughs> the Declaration of Independence. 
this comes up a lot because in RPGs, failure happens all the time. Depending on the system that you're playing, if you look at the numbers, you've got between like a 30 and a 70% chance to screw up any role you're making. And unfortunately, there are many systems where what is supposed to happen, what is prescribed in the rules as happening when a task fails is that nothing happens. It, it just, the thing you were trying to do doesn't happen. You don't get what you were doing. You don't hit, uh, you don't learn information. You don't go anywhere. And that can leave the whole party at an impasse. If you're trying to convince the monarch to send you on a quest and someone rolls a one on their persuasion check, well, uh... I forbid you from going right, crap. and engaging on this adventure. <laughs> <laughs> the more typical, uh, the DC to open the lock on the door at the end of the passageway in the dungeon is 17. You rolled a 15, um, so it doesn't open. Right. Uh, can we try again? No. No, you can't, because otherwise, what would be the point of this? Right. Why do we try at all? <laughs> yeah. Take 20 doesn't exist anymore. Right. Um, yeah, the same thing applies to like save or suck or save or die spells. That's why um, <laughs> originally they weren't supposed to be part of fifth edition uh, was because that binary outcome, like failure can can just make the game worse. Or conversely, you know, success can make the game worse depending on which side is using it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you also can get into a situation where you've got a character who is very good at something, but they can seem completely incompetent for pretty much no reason except that like... One in 20 times, you roll a one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> failing forward is not critical fumbles cutting off your ally's hand in combat one out of 20 rolls. <laughs> it's a different kind of game. Right. <laughs> and then also one other uh, scenario that failing forward could help with is that situation where, you know, you have six people in the party and everyone just keeps trying the check until someone succeeds. You know, you search. You don't find anything? Okay. You search. You don't find anything? All right. I search. And it, one eventually one of us is going to roll high enough that we get the thing. Yeah. So why was why was this even a task? Right. Uh, likewise, you end up with um, with that negotiating about like what other skills can we use here? Right. You know, like, <laughs> so we tried to uh, pick the lock with sleight of hand. Could we maybe you know pick the lock with Arcana? Like, <laughs> can I make a history check about the maker of the lock? Yeah, exactly. And perhaps I've memorized schematics. Right. Oh, this is a Unix system. Yeah, I know this. <laughs> Okay, so when you find yourself in these situations, Shane, how do you handle it? So I think there are uh, a few general approaches um, that that work decently well. Um, So first is succeed at cost. Uh, Second is raise the stakes. And then third is plot an alternative to whatever they were attempting. So let's kind of talk about each of those uh, in turn. Yeah, succeeding at a cost is uh, codified in uh, the Fate RPG, uh, but you know it shows up in a, a lot of other games, uh, powered by the Apocalypse, things like that. It, what it means is that failure doesn't mean that the game stops or that your PC dies. The uh, action that you are trying to attempt still happens, but it doesn't happen without a hitch. You know, so it might be that you are trying to kick in a door and surprise the goblins on the other side. Well, if you fail your athletics check to kick in the door, it doesn't necessarily mean that you run face first into it and nothing happens. It could mean that you kick open the door and it splinters because it's old and you take some damage from shrapnel. Right. 
Uh, likewise, you know, failing to bribe a guard doesn't mean that you're instantly grabbed uh, and thrown in jail with your with your allies themselves. Uh, it could instead mean that, um, you know, the guard refuses your petty bribe. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's he's going to need a little bit more. And like, it's not just gold for him. You're going to have to do some work for him, too. Right. That, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Time for a quest. All of this is is uh, forcing the character or the party into some kind of resource expenditure. And it could be anything. It could be HP, spell slots. It can be money, gear, time. Uh, story progress, right? Like it could be adding work to your list as a like in order to get to your objective. Right. It could be a reputation. You know, maybe it happens, but now, you know, you lose a contact or people uh, look down on you. Yeah, you've been spotted with the wrong crowd. And you can combine these two. The The consequence can be mechanical or story, but it could also be both at the same time. You know, if you are doing some second story work, you're trying to break into a mansion, a failure on the role to break in might mean that you still get inside, but you cut yourself on the glass uh, because you had to break a window to do it. Now, that might mean that you take some damage. It could also mean that now you've left blood behind, which is DNA evidence and certain kinds of games. They'll be able to track you down with that. Yep. It also means people walking by can be like, hey, look, there's blood on that broken glass. Yeah. Any any <laughs> guard kind of walking through the hallway at night might see that bloody trail that you're leaving behind as you kind of creep through the passageway. You might not even know that you're leaving that trail. It could even be something that the the GM doesn't necessarily tell you, right? Okay, you cut yourself, you take a bit of damage. Right. And and because you failed, that's sort of the the it becomes out of your character's purview to to understand that, right? The GM kind of takes over responsibility for narrating. Mm-hmm. This is also a core mechanic in Powered by the Apocalypse games, right? So if you roll high enough, you succeed. Great. If you roll quite low, okay, you fail. But in the middle, you've got that success with a cost, right? You roll a seven through nine and yeah, you punch the enemy, but maybe you leave yourself open to another attack or maybe you need to sacrifice something or you break something, you know, uh, in these kinds of games, the player has a lot of narrative control over what the negative consequence is, uh, even though they still get the thing that they were attempting. Yeah, Star Wars and Genesis system, uh, the narrative dice systems do the same thing, right? You've got uh, threats and despair can be applied even on a successful check. So uh, that's one of my favorite outcomes actually in Genesis is the idea that yes, you had an overwhelming success, but still have a despair. <laughs> like something terrible has happened despite you doing exactly what you wanted to perfection. Somewhere in the <laughs> a, galaxy. A rogue trader dies. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing you can do is raise the stakes of the situation that the characters are in. So, okay, your attempt didn't work the first time. It might be that subsequent attempts risk even greater consequences. You're trying to pick a lock you fail it's not that you fail and now you can't try again or you can keep trying again until you actually roll high enough maybe your thieves tools are stuck in the lock so you've got an option now you can carefully remove your thieves tools and then you can't try picking this lock again because you've damaged something and you've got to figure another way around this or you could try again but if you fail again there's a good chance you're going to break your thieves tools and now where are you yeah, and, and the effect of this is totally based on the context of the game you're playing too, right? So 
at level 20, breaking a set of thieves tools means nothing. Mm -hmm. That's not raising the stakes at all. That's a free reroll. But at, you know, level one in a torchlight game where you're managing every single shot of ammunition, uh, breaking your thieves tools might mean you never get thieves tools again, right? So it could be a, a real, you know, far reaching risk. Yeah, level 20, I think entire um, continents need to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to get through this door. <laughs> right. It's the door to hell. Uh, the other way to think about raising the stakes is um, closing off uh, the the benefit of doing this approach, right? So if we're picking the lock on the door, maybe the door was the quiet way in. Right, the way that bypassed the guards or bypassed a certain challenge. Um, now, what we've done is we've said, quiet's not going to work. We got to go in loud. Now we're going to have to bust in the door, and whoever's on the other side is going to know we did it, but we'll have to go in hot. And there can be multiple versions of this scenario, right? You're opening the door, and yes, maybe it opens, but the lock was rustier than you thought, and so it's loud when you're unlocking it. So because you failed, the quiet way in is no longer the quiet way in. Or, like Shane just said, uh, it's the thing that happens in every single heist movie. It's like my favorite thing in a heist movie is we've got this plan. It is totally laid out. But, of course, something's going to go wrong at some point. Uh, I can't get in the door. Now we have to blow it. <laughs> They've knackered the sewer system. Now we're in Bonnie. <laughs> Bonnie, Bonnie, rubble, trouble. Uh, or, yeah, we want to do this the quiet way. We want to we uh, be subtle about this. And, of course, that doesn't work. Well, all right, lock and load. It's time to do this the hard way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes that's way more fun than, like, getting away with it. Mm -hmm. I still love when you pull that perfect heist, right, where all the planning goes according, like, perfectly. You execute. Um, you know, there's very li little improvisation that's required, and you just feel like, man, we got rewarded for doing this as, like, competent and, like, well-executed operatives mm. but man i love it when a plan falls apart too <laughs> like, like man it was that was a great plan right up until that thing happened and then we had to shoot our way out <laughs> yeah we did this in a uh, blades in the dark game um when our group all went on a uh, vacation to pack some plugged mm -hmm. we had it all planned out it was like a, a double assassination oh it was a i mean it was a very very good plan <laughs> We just did not make a single roll. No. Oh, oh, God. It went totally sideways. So we it got very, very messy. It quit dead everybody. <laughs> right? Three extra guys. Yeah. We're deading them. We're using our bare hands. <laughs> There's just blood everywhere. And, oh, I think a ghost got summoned. Oh, man. It was, yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> And uh, there's a mechanic in, in Blades in the Dark that I really love that I believe is specifically called Raising the Stakes. And it kind of it kind of gives you a re-roll if you agree to go ahead and raise the stakes. So when you're, when you're making a roll in Blades in the Dark, you uh, decide, or you and the GM decide what position you are making this from. Um, if things are going really well for you, then you're operating from a controlled position. And that means that if things go poorly or they don't go according to plan or you fail uh, there's a minor consequence you know maybe you suffer a, a little bit of harm uh, maybe you have a slightly reduced effect it, it's not usually a big deal it's something you can handle but if you fail you have the option to raise the stakes and instead of operating from a controlled position you can try it again but now you're in a risky position and it's essentially you, you can roll again you get a free reroll but if you fail this time um, you're not going to suffer just a tiny bit of harm. You are maybe going to be 
pretty severely injured. You are maybe going to lose something quite valuable. And you can actually do this even one more time. If you fail from a risky position, you can decide, okay, now this is desperate. Uh, and that could be, if you fail that last time, that could just be you die. Now, it, it could be that uh, the, the the mission is completely botched and, and it's all over. Right. And then you're dealing with, you know, whoever hired you. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I like that um, system because it does, or, or not even system, but that framework of thinking about a, a scene because it does a good job of sort of um, following that natural story progression of escalation, right? So um, even if you're just thinking about, well, how is this going so far? Are they still in control? Are things still going to plan? Or, you know, are they now flying by the seat of their pants? Or is it just like everyone is just praying they figure it out right in time, you know? Um, like kind of maps those three sort of controlled, risky, desperate. Um, and and you, as a GM, you want to kind of modulate that, right? And um, if things are going completely, you know, pear-shaped, the players want to get control back, right? So you, you're kind of working with them to figure out ways to do that. Yeah, it's uh, you are appealing to the gambling sensibilities of your players. Like things are going very badly now. You can bail and take that loss or you can do double or nothing. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think it nicely uh, mirrors that escalating tension in a scene where failure is not an option here. Right. Uh, and so, of course, you you increasingly try crazier and crazier things to try to get out of it. Yep. You, you create more problems that you're going to have to solve later in order to move forward uh, solving this problem today. For just one problem solving today, I will gladly fix seven problems for you <laughs> next week. I will gladly pay you for that problem solved Tuesday. <laughs> and then we've alluded to this while we've been talking about the other options, but you can always just look for an alternative strategy. Door is locked. Okay, can't get through the door. Find another way in. Yeah, I... I I think this way can be frustrating for certain players um, when, you know, the challenge is presented in front of them and now they have to imagine some other alternative that wasn't initially presented, right? Um, it, it can be frustrating to be like, cool, so you, you led us to focus on the door and we failed. So now it's like, well, imagine something else. <laughs> um, but I, uh, as a GM, what you want to do is kind of frame your... Um, challenges and tasks less as like open lock or climb this wall and more as get into the complex right like it's not necessarily about going through that door or going over that wall it's about getting to the other side somehow um you there, therefore you have a series of ways to do that you can dig underneath you can go through the door you can climb over the top you can uh, blow a hole in the wall right like all of those things work within that framework, and it's just a matter of applying the right skill check based on your approach. Yeah, I think sometimes this approach can get a bad rap because it is more closely associated with uh, old school gaming. Um, I think uh, it's favored more by simulationists, people who say, okay, we're going to roll a die because my character is attempting this action. And if I roll low, then in the real world, in the real world fiction, they don't accomplish that, right? I don't want you to narrate me through the door I want to roll a die and figure out a way around the door. Right. Um, and, you know, you get in this situation where you have these old school modules and there's the only way to continue the story because you're in this, like, labyrinth 
made of stone that you're like for some reason not allowed to like dig through with a pickaxe (laughs) is is that you have to get through the door uh but at the same time you know old school gamers often have this approach where you know if you want to come up with a wacky idea then go for it you know yeah you're a sorcerer and you can cast fireball but sometimes like lighting a torch and trying to distract the drider is a more interesting cool thing to do rather than just saying all right i fireball it right right so I think that kind of group can sometimes be more okay with winging it and being like, all right, we couldn't get through the door. That's fine. Uh, we're going to go back to town and we're going to like chop down some trees and like uh, build a battering ram. And then we're going to come back here and we're going to knock it down. And, you know, in, and again, in these dungeon crawl type scenarios, like who cares if you disappear for three days? You know, like it's not like there was really um, like a schedule that you were necessarily trying to keep right yeah that's it's interesting because um you know talking it's not even really that old school right like uh as long as take 20 existed as recently as you know pathfinder um like it codified a way that time was the primary cost of failure right which is uh i think not what we're generally advocating for here um but likewise the sort of use an alternative approach to solve a problem um, I, I don't know. Did you, do you remember that uh, Twitter thread that was going around like, I don't know, a month, six weeks ago, um, talking about the difference in incentives for XP uh, between like original D&D and like what's in fifth edition, right? Um, or, or even like third edition where it's like the value of a monster is killing it. And that's how I get my XP. But XP in original D&D was gold. So I don't care if I kill the monster. I just care that I get his stuff. <laughs> um, and so like, that side that that sort of you know sideways approach of like i don't really have to kill this drider i just have to get the drider out of the way so i can steal that sack of gold it's sitting on like that became valid because that was sort of built into the goals right um so it's interesting to kind of see how as we come back around to modern games right like the alternative strategies here associated with using these skill checks like they really do come down to what are you trying to accomplish here in the broader sense of not just bashing things over the head for their magical XPs? Yeah, you bash them over the head to get out your rage at a system that you, you can't deal with, yet you still need to be a part of. <laughs> right. <laughs> your impotent rage. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and then I think you, you mentioned it earlier, um, simulationists are probably a little more drawn to this sort of one action, one check kind of approach to um rpgs uh which which is fine just make sure that you're building your encounters um or or planning your adventures in a way that allows for that right if you know they're going to see it as i you know i checked the lock i failed okay so you have to have the consequences of failure ready for that event so that you can either push them in an alternate direction or raise the stakes right um either way interpret the failure in a way that satisfies what the players are expecting yeah when you're building an encounter uh or when you are running an adventure that's already been uh, pre-written you want to keep an eye out for these kinds of bottlenecks where there's no way to progress the story forward except to succeed um and as a player, it's perfectly fine when you find yourself in this situation to actually query the GM. I don't mean like attack the GM and be like, you know, what the hell's wrong with you? But like, okay, um, 
I, I as a player, am sort of like confounded about how we do this because we can't get to the other side of this door. Could we do A, B, or C? Here are some options I'm just throwing out. Let me know if these are feasible within the game world. Does this even make sense? You know, does my character think this makes sense? Yeah, to, can, can my character see this working? Because uh, I, I can't see everything that my character can right now. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe this isn't an old school dungeon. Maybe I really can go get a pickaxe. Like, these walls are just stone. Yeah, you don't want to uh, <laughs> dig through that wall and get to the kobold caverns on the other side because Tucker will come back with a vengeance. <laughs> I like looking through old school modules, uh, actually, where you look at the map and you sort of, like, put the maps together from, like, the different levels. And you're like, oh, like, the the dragon's lair is literally on the other side of 10 feet of stone from the entrance. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You just need to dig down. Right. (laughs) Yeah, but you got to get through the whole map before you know that. Oh, of course, of course, right? (laughs) What if the bottomless pit had been 10 feet below you? (laughs) Uh, It it always is. It's it's Schrodinger's bottomless pit. Exactly. (laughs) I dig down. Yeah, do you? All right, so when we're talking about, you know, what to do when the dice are like, nope, you you can't do that, sucks for you, remember that one good way to avoid the situation in the first place is to know when not to be rolling the dice. If you're in a situation where the players have to succeed in order for the story to actually continue, uh, maybe they shouldn't be rolling dice to see if they succeed. Maybe they're just succeeding. Yeah, Um, that's so great in narrative elements and so difficult in combat like players are like i have to roll for this it's combat yeah (laughs) okay but i need you to win (laughs) so (laughs) let's go hunting for plus twos please (laughs) tactics tactics right (laughs) uh likewise if if failure doesn't have any consequence it's silly to roll right if uh if you're just rolling the perfunctory like score like what does it matter uh save yourself the trouble and just give them the information they're looking for give them the success that they're expecting yeah uh, you can also just simply assume a baseline competence in the characters. Gumshoe does this really well, where if you're looking for um, a piece of information during an investigation, you get that piece of information. Exactly. Yeah. With uh, the investigative skills all work that way. I really like how I've seen um, in some Wizards of the Coast authored modules lately, you're getting this thing where it says, all right, if you have... Um, proficiency in the nature skill then you know this about these plants no check required yep it's not just like oh i am you know a premier botanist and i have a plus you know 11 to nature and i roll a one and i know nothing about an elm tree yeah i I like that approach for DD skills in general is like treat treat knowledge as proficiency gets it for you and treat the roles as applying the knowledge in some way useful yeah I, i think there are a lot of situations where in all RPGs, you can do this more often. Like, uh, I ran a Firefly one-shot recently. We were using Genesis, and I was thinking back on it. And Shane, actually, one time, I remember, I asked you to make a vigilance check. Um, and thinking back on that, and you succeeded, and you, you saw, like, uh, this, you know, shuttle was was coming in for a landing. And thinking back on it, I was like, why did I have him make that check? Like, if he had failed that or, like, gotten a bunch of threat or something, what would I have done with that? When, right. like, it, it's a flat plane yep. <laughs> and there's a shuttle in the sky and you can hear it and it's like 300 yards away right like, you just see it wait does anybody have vigilance yes okay you notice this right because your guards on alert um and you know it particularly in a situation like genesis or a system where you do have a lot of partial successes or you need to narrate those like don't complicate things for yourself if you can just say oh this happens right 
the the flip side of that is roll vigilance. Okay, I don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> like, oh, you failed. Um, <laughs> Sneak attack. Exactly. <laughs> They're already here. That's just that's what's going to happen every time I have you roll vigilance and you fail. Just every single time. It turns out there were enemies yeah, that you ninjas. didn't notice. <laughs> ninjas every time. See, I don't need to roll for random encounters. You're rolling for random encounters. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> The threat level is the uh, is the level of nemesis that shows up. <laughs> oh dear lord! Uh, three threat and a despair. Oh, I think you all just die. It's a, that's, yeah, mm, that's off. Literally off the charts. <laughs> so to wrap up this segment, I think um, key takeaway is when you're running somebody else's work uh, to be on the lookout for these bottleneck situations where you might need to improvise these kind of things. Um, and then likewise, when you're designing your own adventures or designing your own sessions or um, encounters, right? Um, if you're good at improvising, then great. You can just apply those skills. And if you maybe struggle with improvising, maybe jot down some notes on alternatives to failure so that you've got something in your pocket when the dice don't cooperate with the you know noble and heroic story you're expecting them to embark on. Yeah, and I think... If you are struggling with this at all, either as a player or a GM, you can enlist the help of the other people at the table. Like It's fine to haggle a little bit, you know? Um, okay, we didn't get through this obstacle. What if we try this instead? And as a GM, you know, it's haggling. You can say, yeah, okay, uh, I'll accept that uh, at this cost. Right. <laughs> and the players can be like, uh, what about at this cost? <laughs> <laughs> Or, okay, what if we also go over and do this that's going to take more time and then we deal with this kind of pain? Right. Yeah, careful with time is is another good conclusion because a lot of times, or in a lot of situations, time is not a real factor. Um, So if you don't have a ticking clock on an encounter, using time as the punishment basically means there's no punishment. Mm -hmm. Um, So if if that's good for you, if you want that, then great time is the cost but if you want there to be an actual you know cost to failure then time is probably not a great one do you hear that ishan uh, no i didn't which i think leaves us at an impasse how do we get to the next segment i'm just going to narrate through it sweet so we're going to move on to the character creation forge before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the One-Hit Wonder. One with one blow, which sounds less impressive, but you know, it's D&D, so it is impressive, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're only going to hit once, you better make it count. <laughs> so, ever since Xanathar's came out, we have been eyeing Eldritch Smite and thinking about how to stack that with Divine Smite because we love Paladin Warlocks and that's just crazy spike damage. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, there's been a lot of theory craft going around about the Grave Cleric and what it can do for your own damage output. So we figured why not throw that in too. Yeah. For shits and giggles. So let's talk about what the one-hit wonder is meant to be because we've already done the showstopper, which is just sort of end combat in the first round. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the one hit wonder is uh dependent on actually landing a save uh on your enemy so what what's the what's the parameter for the one hit wonder we're basically trying to do as much damage as we possibly can with one attack so we're just piling it all on to one hit and using the grave cleric to double it yeah so we don't care about going first (laughs) we don't care who the target is what we care about is that at some point in the fight we're going to get our chance to go supernova and knock something into next week right and we're doing it without help from allies right (laughs) help from allies is great but you can't depend on it exactly (laughs) just like those filthy record producers (laughs) i'm gonna be a star i'm gonna have to write this song myself youtube baby that's where it's at (laughs) all right what's the build it is get ready for it fighter 2 grave cleric 2 paladin 2 hexblade blade packed warlock 11 sorcerer 3 all right, cool. Just five classes, not a big deal. No big deal. Now, a lot of these are optional. We'll we'll get there. But the main engine of this includes Paladin, which of course gets us smites and a nice fighting style. From Hexblade Warlock, we're going to be able to uh, key attack and damage off of Charisma, which means we're basically uh, only focusing on one stat, which is nice. We'll end up with three fifth level spell slots and one sixth level slot. And we'll get five invocations, two of which need to be taken up with Eldritch Smite and Thirsting Blade. Your others are kind of open, but, you know, Devil's Sight is always fun. Then from Sorcerer, we get uh, Metamagic, which will allow us to use a Quickened Hold Person or Hold Monster. And combined with Warlock, that means we're pretty much not going to run out of Smites, uh, at least like level two or level one Smites. Yeah, because we can uh, convert those warlock slots into sorcery points and then turn those back into slots exactly which we can just sit on because there's no limit to the number of slots that you can have right so you know halfway through the day you're sitting pretty with low level spell slots and then of course we've got grave cleric which basically all we're interested in here is uh, the level two channel divinity path to the grave as an action you pick a creature within 30 feet of you and then the next time you or an ally Uh, hits it with an attack it has vulnerability to all of the damage from that attack which basically means you double the damage and then of course you get the wonderful cleric package uh bless cure wounds healing word guidance then from fighter we get another fighting style we get some healing on short rest and we get the action surge ability And for race, you can go with human for great weapon fighting, which is always nice, or half orc for the extra crit damage, because you're kind of crit fishing here. So here's how it works. You see an enemy. First off, quickened hold person as your bonus action. Yep. Then as your action, you drop path to the grave. So now they are vulnerable to all the damage from your next attack. Then you action surge so that you can make that attack this round. And then you use Great Weapon Master to make your attack. And when you hit, you Eldritch Smite and then Divine Smite level 5. Right. All on the one attack. So if this all works out, you're looking at 4d6 plus 24d8 plus 15 damage doubled, which is approximately 300 damage, which is basically enough to take out a CR15 creature in one hit assuming that they fail their save that's right now if they don't fail their save remember you're quickening hold person first 
So if they don't fail their save, uh, you can decide, do I want to do the rest of this stuff? Right. Or you can just not do it and just hit them normally with a huge smite. Exactly, yeah. So as you're facing higher CR creatures, they're going to have legendary saves and those types of things. So this is where you become a team player. You're kind of just hanging out in the fight, sort of uh, staying alive for the early rounds, not drawing too much attention to yourself. And as soon as you're confident that those legendary saves are down, that's when you kind of spring in, dive the uh, the the number one enemy, and just finish the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also be that guy who's like, uh, I quick and hold, and your GM is now caught on. If the creature doesn't use a legendary save on this quick and hold, it dies. Right. (laughs) So in comparison, if you're looking at a 20th level assassin rogue, if they have surprise, then they will be able to do a massive sneak attack and then a death attack, which uh, crits and then doubles it. But that only gets you about 168 damage. And more importantly, you don't get to roll 26 D8s. (laughs) Good luck finding those. (laughs) The nice thing about the assassin is you at least roll D6s. (laughs) Now, to be clear, this is not like the most amount of damage it is possible to do with a character in one hit, right? We're not going for that. We are trying to make it so that you don't need to depend on multiple rounds, right? And you don't need to depend on other people helping you out in order to pull this off. But if you have other people helping you out, it's so much easier and you can do it much more often. Yeah. So your leveling order, you're going to start out Warlock 1 because Hexblade lets you start right off the bat using Charisma for attack and damage. Then two levels of Paladin to get your smites. And at that point, you basically have the build going. You are walking around hitting people with smites until they die. After that, you go up to Warlock 5 in order to get your Eldritch Smite, which means you can burn through your spell slots even more quickly. Fighter 2 gets you Action Surge, which will let you pull off the Hold and Smite in the same round trick already. Right. After that, you can toss on a Grave Cleric for Path to the Grave, and then you have options in terms of how you want to leverage all these different abilities. And it all finally comes together with Sorcerer 3, which gets you the Quicken. And then you'll finish out Warlock to level 20. So it all kind of clicks around level 14, basically. Uh, But the pieces start to fit together a lot earlier than that. Yeah, if you wanted to keep this Paladin Warlock, you can do it. And it's like a perfectly viable build. You just go straight through and just double up the crits. Right, right. All right, Ishan. So who is your one-hit wonder? So in these circumstances, when we have a bunch of different classes, I like to think of it not as discrete classes, right? Like, oh, I take a new job and then I get a different job. Right. I like to think of it as, you know, you have an overarching goal and you pursue it by whatever means gets you closer. Yep. So my one-hit wonder is a devotee of uh, a death god. So she is um, beholden to someone like Kelimvor, uh, or or especially the Raven Queen, I think works really well here. Uh, so instead of being just like your routine, you know, cultist assassin, you're kind of a, a higher level, if you will. <laughs> yeah, you you are out there for for a purpose and a reason, right? You are you are a deathbringer, mm-hmm. very specifically, uh, but you know, for a good or maybe neutral cause, right? You're you're out there cleaning things up. But she is a she's a holy warrior who is out there following the the tenets of of her deity, and the pact that she makes. Uh, I like that it is not uh, serving two masters, right? The hexblade is just a different type of weapon, and you know in the lore they said the hexblade may have been initially created by the Raven Queen in the first place. But also, I don't see like the gods of death are typically like 
neutral in some way or lawful neutral. Or they're like, you know what? I just need you to do the things that I'm telling you to do. And I don't really care if you love me. Uh, and I think Kelimvor certainly isn't going to care if you're like, I, I have created this pact with this powerful weapon because it helps me to further the goals of, of my deity. I think they're going to be fine with that. Right, right. So she's out there amassing the tools uh, to bring death to those who deserve it. And I love that when she walks around, she can see that now is your time. I like that. It's like uh, Spanish Inquisition, but, you know, good hearted. Ish. Kind of. Sort of. All right. What about your one hit wonder? So, Yishin, I know that you don't play Overwatch. That but, is correct. But with the advent of the Overwatch League as an esports league, have you been watching that? Is that Twitch? It's on Twitch. Yep. Okay. No. Haven't. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Okay. So, as you know, I have been playing Overwatch since it was launched. Uh, I have now started watching the Overwatch League. I am sort of obsessed with this. And when I saw this, I see exactly as i described right that frontline fighter who's just kind of sticking in there poking around doing a little damage until he sees the wounded target and then finishes them off with a big swing of his sword that comes out of nowhere and is somehow you know infused with magical energy and i hear genji so my character is a ninja warrior monk who uh was once a member of a crime family uh like a you know, like a, 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 a an underworld gang kind of kind of thing, uh, found inner peace, began uh, worshiping. Um, you know, probably under the tutelage of some type of monk, uh, and and really started to embrace that. Wait, uh, wait, wait! They were a mafioso who became a bodhisattva. Uh, sure, I don't know. I don't know what any of those <laughs> words mean. Oh, I guess I know what mafiosa means. <laughs> yeah, uh, Genji and his brother are both the uh, sons of yakuza bosses. Uh, his brother became a Yakuza boss and he did not. Nice. Okay. But yeah, so that's that's kind of his thing, right? So he's not infusing like divine radiance into his uh, dragon blade, which is obviously what he calls it. Uh, he's sort of more infusing this righteous inner peace. Which burns with radiant fire, yes? And a lot of force. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was maybe a reach, but let's get out of here. <laughs> So before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you want to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. I believe the next one is at the $300 per month level, we are going to review the Forgotten Realms. Indeed. Which I you just told me that Morden Kanan's in them. Morden Kanan is in the Forgotten Which is ridiculous. Realms. Yeah, I, I agree. That's dumb. Uh-huh. It's a thing, though. Okay. So you can find out how we feel about that soon <laughs> uh, at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also find the character creation forge codex, which was a reward unlocked by our Patreon supporters. Uh, that contains every single build that we have ever made for the character creation forge uh, indexed by episode and uh, theme, including the one hit wonder. And you can also leave us a review on iTunes. Five stars is very helpful. And if you do, we'll read it right here. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be talking about creation myths. And in the character creation forge? We're building Odin. Well, that's it for episode 133 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.